0: everyone and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Dr. Eben Alexander III an academic neurosurgeon who taught at Harvard Medical School and other universities. His father was also a neurosurgeon and he grew up with a scientific worldview. He was an expert in what happens to the brain when people are near death and his understanding did not allow for the phenomena commonly associated with near-death experiences. In the fall of 2008, he contracted a rare and usually fatal form of meningitis that put him into a deep coma. It completely inactivated the thinking part of his brain, and his doctors had given up hope for his recovery. He astounded everyone by coming out of the coma on the seventh day, but while in coma, he had some extraordinary experiences and profound insights, eloquently described in his new book, Proof of Heaven, which he is going to share with us today. Dr. Evan Alexander, welcome.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us. I was really rather concerned after the storm hit the East Coast, and you're in Virginia.
1: Yes, well, it was much worse up towards D.C. and New York, and we were very fortunate. My heart goes out to the people up there, though. I think it was uh, devastating in New York. <laughs>
0: Our hearts go out to everybody affected by the storm and it is a call for everybody to come together and, and help each other. So, uh, our, our hearts and prayers go out to you all. Well, uh, you had this most amazing background for what you experienced. Uh, i can 't think of a better person to be able to describe um, the experience of brain death, so can you can you possibly start by giving us a quick lesson in neurophysiology? What happened to your brain and its functions during your illness
1: well it it really struck me very quickly. It was like being hit by a train, amazing how how rapidly uh, the bacteria could could grow and, and take over. Uh, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning with severe back pain and then uh, soon thereafter had a, a tremendous headache and then was lapsing into unconsciousness uh, within about three hours or so. And at the time, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, e coli bacteria and it's a that's a very rare bacteria to give an adult meningitis less than one in 10 million per year um have spontaneous e coli meningitis in adults it usually happens in newborns uh but the bacteria were growing over the surface of my brain over the neocortex uh and and uh, very rapidly we're we're uh, destroying that outer surface of my brain the part that uh really is responsible for giving us uh Human awareness and consciousness. Uh, the cortex, that outer surface, is where uh, we have all of our uh, visual uh, experience, all of our auditory experience, what we hear, uh, speech and language, uh, movement, uh, all of our rational thinking, all of our orientation of you know where we are in space and what is surrounding us. Uh, all of that is put together in the cortex, and by having bacteria completely uh, wrecking my cortex and very rapidly driving me into coma, uh, that part of my brain where all of that human conscious experience occurs was down. It was off uh, and being wrecked by those bacteria. So it's it's really when I heard details about my illness uh, after coming back from coma, I was just shocked that I'd been able to recover because my Doctors had predicted that I, by the end of the week in coma, when I'd been on a ventilator, uh, you know, really for the, for the whole week uh, and shown less and less in the way of neurologic function, including a lot of brainstem damage, uh, they did not expect any chance for neurologic recovery and thought I'd spend the rest of my life in a nursing home. So I'm very fortunate indeed.
0: So, what do you ascribe your recovery to? Um, well, I
1: think my physicians would all agree that it really was a, a medical miracle uh, for me to come back. Um, and for me, it's very helpful that, uh, for one thing, uh, I would say I had impossible after impossible after impossible, and these kind of forced me to come to some realization of what what this all meant and what my journey meant. And and when I talk about that string of impossibles, I'm saying, for one thing, to have an E. coli meningitis, which is very rare, uh, and then to go into coma within a few hours. Uh, and when when that happens, uh, if a patient has bacterial meningitis and goes in coma uh, in anything less than 24 hours, already that gives them a 90% chance of dying from that illness. Uh, so I had at least a 90% chance of dying from it when I got to the er i was already in coma at that time i was having grandma seizures and um i ended up getting a, uh intubated so that the ventilator could breathe for me and that's how i how i spent the week uh deep in coma from the meningitis itself and that uh should have completely disabled any kind of experience at all and, and yet I, I had this very rich experience uh, in coma. And, and that, of course, is the part that has taken me such a long time and a lot of hard work to try and understand. Um, but the going back to the impossible, 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 the other feature in addition to E. coli meningitis and then going deep into coma and having virtually no chance of recovery to then come out of coma and within hours my language was coming back within days my family memories and within a few weeks all my neurosurgical knowledge that kind of recovery should never have happened and uh, my doctors will attest that uh, they really have no explanation I mean there's not a medical explanation for how this all happened Uh, and that of course has helped me to dig even deeper to try and understand it all
0: so you had a very rich Uh, and vivid experience while you were in coma and you you came back with the memory of it which you have already um said was uh impossible by most uh, yardsticks um tell us about the 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 experiences that you had
1: okay well it's important to point out that at the very beginning of my awareness deep inside of coma um that I had no memory whatsoever of my life. I had no language, no words, all that was gone. Any knowledge of humans, uh, of my identity, any knowledge of Earth and this universe uh, were completely gone because of the very severe meningitis. And what I do remember is this awareness, that I was just this speck of awareness that uh, was in a murky Uh, Realm, very monotonous, kind of foamy realm, almost like kind of boiling black, red mud, Uh, a sense of roots or vessels around me, a pounding monotonous uh, kind of base, uh, mechanical pounding deep uh, beneath me, and no body awareness at all. And also, as I said, foamy. Well, the foamy was in space and time because I think... uh, you know, My memory was, was not working well at all, certainly as we think of memory in the brain kind of sense. Um, and in looking back on it, my thinking is that that coarse, ugly realm, which I came to call the earthworm's eye view realm, uh, was the best consciousness that my brain could muster uh, when soaking in pus and being that sick. Um, and it turns out that I, since I had no prior memory of anything, uh, even you know a short amount of time spent in that realm seemed like an eternity. And I did feel like I was there for ages and ages. Uh, and at some point in that very prolonged, monotonous uh, period, there was this slowly spinning bright light with this lovely melody, uh, absolutely beautiful musical uh, melody going with this light. As it approached my awareness and it was the most beautiful visual and auditory experience especially because everything i'd ever known had been this monotonous darkness kind of under the ground and as that melody and light spun toward me they slowly kind of ripped open like ripping the very fabric of reality and it was a portal into a lovely valley and i was coming up through this valley and i had no body awareness at all um i was moving uh, up into a much brighter very colorful alive part of the valley uh verdant fertile uh waterfalls falling into crystal pools and uh it turns out that i was moving because i was a speck of awareness on this butterfly wing beautiful butterfly colors shifting indescribable beyond the rainbow and then millions of other similar butterflies around us in this lovely flowing river of color and life and this uh, river of butterflies would flow down into the greenery and then back up high and we'd go by these flowers that were uh, blossoming and and blooms that would open as we went by and below us these uh, what i later in my writings called villagers uh, but dancing singing lots of joy and merriment i think they were souls actually um, and and then beside me on the butterfly wing i saw that there was this beautiful girl and i can remember her face perfectly just absolutely lovely uh, sparkling deep blue eyes and this wide perfect smile and high cheekbones, and I remember she was dressed in the same kind of uh, simple garb that, that the people dancing below us were in, but it was a, had very vivid colors, very alive colors, and her thoughts would go right into my mind, into my awareness. Uh, that you are loved, you are cherished, there is nothing you can do wrong, you have nothing to fear. And when she said nothing to do wrong, that applied only in that realm. It did not apply in the earthly realm. Some people misunderstand that. But it was so comforting, this beautiful reassurance coming from her, especially given where I'd been, you know, in that murky underground realm. And then there was this divine breeze that swept through like a perfect summer wind, And it shifted everything in my awareness. Uh, Even though the scene stayed the same, I became aware with that beautiful breath that flowed over me that this was all divine, that the divine creative power and infinite love went through every speck of that existence. And it was after that awareness that all of that scene and, in fact, the whole observable universe collapsed rapidly rapidly into a tight ball, and I saw time, as, as we see Earth time or time in this universe, uh, collapsing into a tight loop or a point, and then the whole thing receded, higher dimensional space collapsing on top of it all, um, and then entering what I what I then call the core, which was this infinite black void, and it was infinitely comforting. That love, that divine had followed right with me. And I was now with this beautiful orb of light, as bright as a million suns, filling that darkness with light uh, and that beautiful, loving spirit of the divinity. And there were, again, no words, but the concept was very clear. We will show you many things, but you're not here to stay. And, in Mm -hmm. fact, that's what, what they did. And when I say they, I'm referring to that divine, infinite of all-powerful, all-knowing, who I think most of us would refer to as God, uh, that all-powerful deity, um, and that brilliant orb of light. Now, of course, this is completely outside of higher-dimensional multiverse and outside of all of eternity. Uh, there was was no way anything had a physical form there other than that brilliant orb of light. But the whole higher-dimensional multiverse was right there in front of me, and that was a part of many of these lessons, the lessons about the geometry of our uh, our universe and of higher-dimensional space, how time flow works, how time flow out there was totally different from what we see as time flow here. And uh, seeing that, that... Very powerful love, infinitely powerful, unconditional love of the Creator was the very fabric of all those higher dimensional spaces coming right down into our realm, but seeing how evil was a trace and purity uh, that was present in in this physical realm and also present on earth. And that was the price we paid for uh, being able to manifest free will, which was mm-hmm. the gift of that infinite love of the creator. And it was the only way to explain um, that that. Deity so infinitely loving beyond description, but also all powerful. Uh, when I came back, of course, I wrestled with questions of how could that being that I knew so well in that realm allow the evil and injustice, and especially the the suffering of innocents like children and animals uh, in this realm. And I wrestled long and hard with with that particular question after I came back. But I was given many lessons when I was deep in this realm, and then shockingly I would wind up right back in that earthworm eye view in that very coarse ugly monotonous unresponsive underground and that was just a giant mystery to me how that even happened but what I learned over time is that by remembering the notes of the spinning melody I was able to bring that melody back and the spinning white light and once again it would open up and become a portal into that beautiful gateway, as I call it, um, the gateway was the lovely valley with the butterflies, and I was on the butterfly wing with a beautiful girl, and she was there every time I went back in there and that happened several times i don 't know how many <laughs> happened.
0: well, you know so many um, people who have had experiences. Uh, that i've spoken with like like yours uh refer to this kind of dumping of information it's just this this kind of injection of knowingness
1: right right
0: to experience you, oh, you yeah. must have been so disoriented when you woke up from your coma after having all of this experience what were you feeling
1: well, when uh, you know, you're right about that. I mean, the, the conceptual flow was absolutely astonishing. You know, not limited at all by this bottleneck of, of language. Um, a lot of the lessons that I was taught, I mean, I'm sure I will spend the rest of my life and then some, trying to understand some of those deep lessons that were taught in that core. Uh, and I do that through meditation, and, and I do kind of slowly unravel some of those truths and go deeper and deeper. Um, but when I was first coming back, when I first opened my eyes, and of course I described this in the book, but uh, I had seen those six faces, and just like I could remember perfectly uh, the appearance of that beautiful companion on the butterfly wing, and her, her lovely face was just burned into my memory. Likewise, there were six other faces that I saw as I was starting, uh, to come up and out of the, the deepest realms. Um, and it was all at a time when I was surrounded by beings who were kind of murmuring and kneeling, and there were thousands of them going off in the distance. But as this murmuring was generating these clouds of energy that were bouncing me back up, and even though I'd been very sad, could not get into uh, the realm again, that beautiful heavenly realm. Uh, They told me I'd be going back, and I found that the Melody Note worked. Um, And so anyway, I was very uh, overjoyed with that, that murmuring and energy, and I wrote it all down later and said that they were praying for me, and that is an important point. They were welcoming me back to this realm. With those prayers, and, it, and they were getting through, and it was helping a lot. Uh, but then I saw these six faces. I didn't know who they were, um, and you know I was still just coming out of coma. I still had the breathing tube in, was on the ventilator, and that was on the Sunday morning, the seventh day, uh, when I did start finally waking up and coming out of this, and was trying to get the tube out. And the doctor realized, oh my gosh, he's waking up, and came and 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 did pull the breathing tube out. Um, and it was very strange. It was, uh, uh, in fact, one of the one of my wife's friends who was there said that when my eyes were first opening, that I looked much more like an infant, looking around at the world for the first time, with this kind of amazed gaze, uh, than like an adult coming back from seven days in coma. And and it really was a very strange world to come back to. And my language was just just beginning to come back online as I was waking up, but it did come back fairly rapidly over the next hours and and days. And um, I did go through a phase there after I came out of coma and after I did recognize people in the ICU around me, but I was kind of in and out of uh, a crazy uh, psychotic uh, delusion, you know, a typical ICU psychosis over the next 24 to 36 hours which was completely different from that hyper-reality and and infinitely meaningful and very rich uh, awareness deep inside coma at the gateway and the core outside of this universe. Those memories were very sharp and have stayed with me ever since, whereas the kind of psychotic nightmare that I had in and out of being aware in the ICU over those first 24 to 36 hours when I was waking up, that, that was clearly different and there was a lot of language in that Uh, it was a lot about my brain recovering its bearings Uh, and you know later on as I'm analyzing all this that uh, kind of crazy uh, nightmare provided a perfect foil to show me the power and reality uh, of those deeper parts of the coma.
0: Hmm. Had you been a religious person before?
1: Well, I I grew up uh, in a religious home in North Carolina. My father had been a combat surgeon in uh, the Pacific in World War II, and I think his strong spirituality helped to carry him through all that. Um, And so I I got some of that growing up, although I'll say that I remember in sixth grade when I was getting confirmed in my Methodist church, I had what I thought was a very healthy argument with my Sunday school teachers because I was becoming very firmly entrenched in science and how science was the pathway to truth. (laughs) And uh, I will say that during my adult life, early adult life, uh, I wanted to believe in God and prayer, and in fact, when we had our sons, I would say prayers with them. But, you know, 20 years plus in uh, in uh, academic neurosurgery, very much studying the brain and how it works and seeing patients in coma and seeing patients die, uh, I just really didn't see any way that, that consciousness, soul, or spirit could survive when the, when the body and the brain die. And that was my belief. Uh, as much as I wanted to believe. But then, as I explained in my book, um, I, was, I was adopted. And, in fact, due to my older son's school project, I started looking for my adoptive mother, I mean my birth mother, again, in the year 2000 uh, as part of his project. I'd pretty much given up on that years earlier uh, because I just thought she was not interested in finding me, and North Carolina laws were very strict to protect anonymity. So I'd given up. But now with my son's interest in 2000, I pursued it again and found out that my birth parents had actually gotten married and had three kids. And that was a gigantic shock that they got married and that my uh, youngest sister had already passed over in 1998 and that it wasn't a good time to come back in their lives. And that I didn't realize it until uh, a year or two later, but that Moment that revelation and that rejection absolutely destroyed any remnant I had believing in a loving God, a personal God, or any value to prayer. I completely gave up on all that for those eight years before my coma. Hmm.
0: It's interesting. You you describe this three-part message that you received in The Gateway, which I found very moving, and, and you told us two parts of it. Um, which is you are you are loved and unconditionally. But you also said that one of the messages you got was that you would not be thrown away. Uh huh. And it, I, I think this. It sounds like this connects with your feelings of abandonment.
1: I think that that's very true. I mean, that was a deep part of the message. Um, and I think it's important to understand that. Uh, you know, I had just been through what I felt like centuries or millennia in this murky, underground, monotonous, boiling mud existence. No matter what I thought, even though I didn't have words, I could wonder, you know, what, where, why. Uh, and there was never a response at all. And so in a sense, um, you know, it was this uh, awareness of being completely unimportant, unrelated to anything, and having no power. In fact, the only power I had through most of this experience was that the outcome did not matter. Uh, I could continue to exist or not exist, uh, and the outcome did not matter. Um, and so I think that was a huge part of why that message came through so clearly. You will not be thrown away at that at that time because uh, in in a sense, I felt that way. And you're right, it, it also was something uh, in my life before that had been kind of an underlying assumption about uh, the fact that I was not lovable, not worthy of love, because my mother had uh, given me away. a You know,
0: whatever the reason, I think many people carry feelings of rejection or abandonment with them at, at a really deep level. And I'm feeling that these words would apply more generally and not just in your specific case. What do you think?
1: Well oh, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, that's a message that I try and bring through in the book is that each and every one of us has that unconditional divine love of the creator who is all powerful uh, and loves us dearly, more dearly than we love ourselves and can love each other. And to know that we are worthy of that love and that we are indeed cherished by that creator in, in this beautiful sense uh, I think helps us understand and have much more meaning and purpose uh, in our lives. And we can all get to that. We don't have to almost die to get this message, uh, but we do have to do the work and go deep into consciousness. Uh, that can involve centering prayer. Or it can involve uh, deep meditation, uh, and, and it really involves turning off that little voice of anxiety, you know, the voice of the ego in our head, uh, the voice of the self. Uh, that really has to be turned off to allow us to go deeper and deeper and to begin to know uh, that oneness that we share. And the fact that our our very consciousness is a direct link to the divine to that all powerful God at the core of it all, and I think it is a very comforting message for people uh, to get from my book and uh, that is one of those things that that i I hope really gets out there, uh, but it, it very much involves meditation uh, and you know getting into a, a place deep in our deep in our our being where just as the meditators over thousands of years have known we can find that oneness and that love and the fact that we don't need to be looking outside for any kind of validation it's right there inside of us in the purest form
0: i think one interesting point that you talk about in pulling yourself out of this you know the earthworm view or this murk or Mm -hmm. would you would you equate it with bardo
1: i think so i think you know that's um uh, that's actually a very good point because i i really had never read uh you know the near-death literature before my coma because i just didn't believe that such things uh, were believable um and i had certainly not read you know the very rich afterlife literature that's out there going all the way back to the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the ancient Greeks and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But I think you raise a very good point because I thought for a long time that that kind of murky underground uh, was the best that my brain could muster uh, soaking in pus. But I think it, it may actually be more general than that, and that in fact you may be bringing up a, a very good point that this this is a territory just like uh, each of the realms that I discuss uh, that has um, components that have been described going back thousands of years when writing about the the afterlife, and and for me, just for the reader who's who maybe is is new to this this literature, uh, I would point out that the what I call the gateway. Uh, with a beautiful butterfly and my companion and the flowers and the uh, angels above singing these glorious chants and hymns, has a lot of earthly trappings, and uh, I recognized that at the get-go. And that was not what I was thinking was was heaven at all. Uh, The heaven that I came to recognize later was that part... Uh, that I did encounter in the core with that deity outside of all of space and time and higher dimensional space with that brilliant orb of light. But they, but it's very important to see that these kinds of realms and descriptions actually are consistent across cultures, across millennia, uh, and across belief systems. And, going, you know, going back for um, at least 2,500 to 3,000 years of human history, mm-hmm. that afterlife realm has really not changed when you start looking uh, deep down into these stories.
0: One thing that impressed me was that you actually were able to take yourself out of that realm and into the more beautiful gateway realm simply through your thought and intention. And I think that has a, a kind of a broader implication for even our terrestrial life.
1: Well, well I think it does. And it, it, it was amazing to me quite and quite a lesson uh, to realize that that beautiful spinning melody uh, associated with that lovely white light with the fine filaments coming off of it, uh, that by remembering the notes, the musical notes, that was the key to reopen that gateway and go in again and again. Hmm. And I think that is a certainly a very powerful lesson for uh, how one might negotiate this uh, kind of very strange realm uh, when one goes in there. But it was, to me, very helpful to be able to use uh, music and to use that kind of willing to be able to get back into that realm.
0: Now, you, you speak with great excitement and intensity about this experience. And yet, when you came back uh, and started piecing yourself back together, you really started from the skeptical point of view. And you um, tell us the steps you went through to try and disprove all the alternative hypotheses of what happened to you.
1: Okay, well, um, you know, I was blown away just as are millions of people who have who have been to this same realm. You know, I came back and I was just kind of shocked at the power of it, the beauty of it, how real it was, and how returning here was very kind of dreamlike. This realm, you know, on Earth still seems very dreamlike in comparison to that. Um, and it uh yeah, I would mention it to my fellow physicians, and uh, you know they'd say, Oh yes, you were very sick, you know your brain was <laughs> poking at us, and uh, you know I just I learned that uh, you know, don't make too big a deal of it because uh, they might want to get a psych consult and just say you're crazy. Um, but I was fascinated with it because it was so incredibly rich and as, and as I learned more and more about how sick my brain had been. And that my whole cortex had been wiped out with this severe bacterial meningitis. I started thinking, well, how in the world could this happen? Where in the where in the brain could you possibly manufacture this very rich, interactive, prolonged odyssey? Of, you know that that was so intensely valid. And and I thought, well, it was way too real to be real. Uh, and I thought that I I should be able to explain it as a neuroscientific, uh, you know, explanation. And I, and that was my original intent, was to write a paper uh, for the neuroscientific literature about what it's like in coma, to try and address this whole issue of kind of the hyper-reality and how you could even have that, um, especially when the whole cortex was wiped with this uh, infection. And... Then, you know, I, I spent the first six weeks writing down everything I could about my experience because my older son, majoring in neuroscience, said, well, if you want this to be meaningful, Dad, you've got to, you know, write it all down. Don't talk to anybody. Don't read anything from the near-death literature. Don't read anything about physics or cosmology. Write down your whole story. And that's what I did, and I took six weeks. Of course, it was just killing me. I really wanted to read everything I could because I was fascinated with it, but I didn't. I wrote down about 20,000 words, everything I could remember from within coma. And then I started reading the near-death literature. And I was really blown away because I came to realize that the similarities in these experiences, especially given the wide variety of medical situations uh, that lead to them, uh, the similarities were very striking. And, um, you know, I, I realized that a lot of the kind of superficial elements like, Uh, A Christian might see Jesus and a Muslim might see Muhammad. Well, those are expected because that's kind of the veiling function of the brain. As we come back, it taints our memories. But the deeper aspects of the really transcendental journeys... um, That was very powerful. And of course from that point I then expanded outside of the near death literature, started looking at other mystical literature over thousands of years, and plus the afterlife literature specifically, uh Egyptian Book of the Dead, Tibet Book of the Dead. And um and Plato's writings and I mean there are many writings uh, uh going back uh through history from many cultures about this. But It was stunning to me how that afterlife realm has not really changed and how the features of it you can really identify, especially if you get over that uh, kind of simplistic uh, pseudo-skeptical issue concerning how the brain and someone's personal and cultural bias uh, puts a certain flavor on memories as we come back in. But far more important were the deeper similarities. And that, to me, was just absolutely stunning. And that's when I was starting to realize what my experience was really telling me, Uh, especially because I was reaching a a point where I had nine neuroscientific hypotheses that might explain my experience in a brain-based fashion. And especially because of a very severe meningitis, none of those hypotheses worked. And so the conclusion is that the experience was very real, truly happened. It did not happen in my brain, and it did not happen in the physical universe. And I think once people start to get what that really means, uh, they start to see the power of what this is saying. And it certainly supports a very rich conscious existence, completely independent of the brain, and that our consciousness is actually liberated when the brain and body die to a much higher level.
0: I think one of the implications of what you're saying is that memories are not actually stored in the brain.
1: That's a very, very good point. And, of course, over the last three and a half years of very hard work trying to understand all this, I've I've encountered some of the uh, transpersonal psychology literature and also especially some of the reincarnation literature uh, from Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker uh, at the University of Virginia. Uh, which is very compelling. And, uh, you know, before I never would have believed any of this was possible because I thought the brain had to generate consciousness, so I didn't pay attention. But, you know, people who claim to be scientific and educated who weigh in on this are willfully ignorant if they do not go in and look at this literature, and especially I would recommend the book Irreducible Mind* by Ed Kelly and Bruce Grayson and the group at UVA and that came out in 2007. It's a wonderful book that talks about all manner of extended consciousness and the reality behind it. And also Dr. Pim Van Lommel's book Consciousness Beyond Life which is an incredible uh, and wonderful book that explains so much of near-death experiences and how consciousness is not produced by the brain at all. And a lot of this, of course, involves Uh, what scientists call the hard problem of consciousness and the enigma of quantum mechanics, which I go into a little bit in my book. Uh, But they're very important in understanding the reality of what we're seeing here, um, which is the eternity of our spirit and soul, and that consciousness is at the root of our reality.
0: Are you familiar with the concept of the Akashic Records?
1: Uh, Yes, I I am. And I'm also in a similar vein. I would mention... uh, um, uh, Carl Pribram, the neurosurgeon, and uh, David Baum, B-O-H-M, uh, the the brilliant uh, physicist, um, and their uh, kind of implicate order, the whole idea of a quantum hologram. Uh, and again, it, it brings up ideas from John Wheeler, Frederick von Weizsäcker, about information at the very core of all of existence. And for me, it's a short step to say that information at the core of all of existence existence uh, is virtually the same as an infinitely powerful, all-loving, creative deity at the core of all existence, and it explains very much, but I think your reference to the Akashic Records is very much, uh, you know, in line with this kind of thinking, although I see that that kind of information at its very core is also associated primarily with this all-loving, infinitely powerful uh, creator what many would call God.
0: Well, we're, uh, there, there are so many different approaches to nomenclature, and I think uh, at some level uh, people realize that they're talking about the same thing. Um, Bruce Lipton, uh, are, are you familiar with Bruce Lipton's work? I am. um he sees the, the nervous system really more as a, a transmitter and receiver. Um, and that would be, uh, consistent with your ability to recapture not only the memories of what you experienced, uh, in your coma, but also your, your language and your, uh, Uh, your medical knowledge, which you say was essentially wiped out by the destruction of your neocortex.
1: Uh, That's all very much the case. You can bet when, uh, for the first few months when I was wrestling with, with all of these questions and wrestling with this incredible experience, especially when I would have told you before my coma that a patient in such a state would recover remembering absolutely nothing at all, and yet, I remembered a tremendous amount. Uh, at the end of the day, every day, I would wonder well, you know, even after I explain elements of the experience, how in the world did it get laid down in my memory? I mean, that part was a real difficult and vexing question. Of course, what I realize now is that uh, all memory, just like all experience and consciousness, is not brain. Processing, And that's an, a very crucial thing to understand. Of course, it's, I hate to use the pun no-brainer, but it really is a no-brainer when you realize uh, the depth of information supporting reincarnation uh, that those memories, uh, you know, where were they stored uh, between lives? And um, I've come to realize that, uh, that a lot of kind of memory, experience, and consciousness is completely independent of this physical reality. Uh, I often say that we are conscious in spite of our brain, acknowledging that the brain functions mainly as a filter or reducing valve. Uh, Some people would say that's very similar to a transceiver kind of idea, like Bruce Lipton uh, discusses um and that that's very important that the brain is actually there to kind of reduce down to a trickle the information flow because uh that all knowingness that's available out there beyond space and time to our true uh, unfettered consciousness uh is not something that's necessary for the survival of the individual uh you know in this little realm
0: it would probably bro- blow the circuits
1: I think it would probably do exactly that, and it's uh, it's kind of an overkill in terms of of knowing, uh, and yet I think people often learn to trust their intuition. Uh, and Larry Dossey just wrote a, a wonderful book on premonitions, uh, showing kind of the power of that kind of intuitive knowing and and kind of precognition about events that that are to come. Uh, that I think is uh, part of the same process, you know, it's it's getting into uh, that knowing that is uh, separate, uh, un- you know, it's not really stuck in space and time like our brain and body are. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, before we started this interview that you had a, a, at least double or more the material that you were able to squeeze into this book. Are you coming out with another a follow-up book?
1: Well, I, I will be. I mean, I can tell you that when I wrote this manuscript... Uh, As I said, I started out writing a uh, neuroscientific report to try and explain the ultra-reality deep in coma, especially given severe meningitis with a neocortex that was no longer working at all. Uh, But as I came to realize what it all really meant, uh, that really ignited me to understand it. And so at that point, I was really writing down everything I could to try and understand it personally, understand it for my own use. Uh, to come up with a consistent system so that all of my scientific knowing all my philosophical knowing um, was consistent with uh, with my experience and that ended up being a manuscript that's about four times as long as the current book uh, and then as I was working with Simon & Schuster our goal was really to put together a book that would be uh, very helpful for the general reader it was not, it was not uh, uh, you know, writing this initial book uh, for the you know the connoisseur of NDEs, it was really written to tell the world, you know, look out, uh, don't believe that you know neuroscientists and you know the modern world of science is on the verge of telling you how consciousness works, because in fact, they have come to discover over the last few decades, uh, to their chagrin. That it is probably such a deep mystery that we will never explain anyway that consciousness emerges from the physical brain, you know that 's the hard problem of consciousness that 's why it is so hard is because it probably is insoluble, and that the enigma of quantum mechanics actually is much simpler to look at when you acknowledge that consciousness spirit' soul is primary and generates all the rest of this and I think that was kind of the key thing to get out to people. And because the implication, you know, from millions of near death experiences, and certainly from mine, and I appreciate all those other near death experiences because they helped me to understand my experience. But the message from them is that there is this all loving, infinitely powerful, creative uh, God at the core of it all who loves us all deeply, and we all have a direct link through our consciousness to him. And the materialist worldview that says that physical reality uh, is all there is, of course, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, in fact, the physics community is racing headlong to tell us that there is no material to the material world, <laughs> all <laughs> vibrating strings of energy in higher dimensional space-time. And I think it's important for people to realize that science and spirituality strengthen each other, but that we have to broaden the boundaries of science to fully encompass the truly profound nature of our conscious existence and knowing that our, our spirit or soul is eternal and has this divine connection at the deepest levels. And to proceed forward with science and spirituality in a way that is the best for mankind and the best in our understanding of truth and reality it's all about uh, seeing this this truth and and realizing that um, you know there's been this white elephant in the in the living room for materialist reductive science modern neuroscience um, of consciousness and It's a far deeper mystery, and that is key to understanding all these points in my book and why it should be a world-changing recognition.
0: Do you have the sense that your entire experience was orchestrated at some level to bring together the the scientist, the neuroscientist, uh, the, the plausible reporter of this experience?
1: Well, I I can tell you as kind of a uh, kind of a humble, old-fashioned uh, doctor type, and that comes mainly from my father, who I just worshipped, and he was a, just a wonderfully real and deep, uh, honest soul. Uh, that for the longest time I resisted, you know, this this uh, kind of conclusion that maybe all of this did happen for a reason, that maybe. I was a good choice for somebody to get this extremely rare E. coli meningitis, go deep into coma, have this experience, and then come back out uh, to tell about it. Uh, And I resisted that a lot because, you know, I wanted to take myself out of the focus. Of course, as a doctor, what you'd like to do in this kind of situation is identify how I was able to have this miraculous healing and, and come away from an experience that should have killed me and should definitely have never left an opportunity for my mind to come back. Um, I would like to understand how it happened so I could write out a prescription for it, give it out to patients, and tell my fellow physicians what to write on that prescription. The problem was I didn't know what had enabled that miraculous recovery. Uh, And I must say, after about two years, I finally started to admit that maybe it did all happen for a reason and that um, maybe I was... Uh, meant to to tell this story and to get this out there, uh, to help people understand that our lives are far more meaningful, uh, far richer, and filled with purpose uh, than I ever would have thought back when I worshipped the materialistic mindset that says that all you have is birth to death. There's nothing outside of that, so forget about it. I now know that's not at all true, that our existence is far richer uh, and involves our soul's journey Uh, with many other souls and through many lives to accomplish uh, wonderful things, but all around giving out that love and that uh, compassion uh, to our fellow souls in spite of the evil, the injustice, uh, and the hardship that is so prominent in this world. And I think maybe it did happen for a reason.
0: What is your website?
1: Uh, Lifebeyonddeath.net. Uh, I also would strongly encourage people to visit Eternia, E T E R N E A dot org. That is uh, a site that I started with a good friend, John Odette, and it has everything to do with educating the public about all kinds of spiritually transformative experiences, not just near death experiences, but also allowing them to report their own experiences. A huge part of my effort is is to wake up the medical profession to this. I mean, there are plenty of nurses and doctors who already know this truth, but there are others who don't. And what I want to do is take the lid off, educate medical students, educate the doctors who are resistant, the skeptical types, uh, that this is very real, to invite these stories from people who have near-death experiences, to invite stories from families. And that's what attorney is doing, is, is, is serving as a database for many millions of people to go report these same kind of experiences, Eternia is also all about understanding the physics of consciousness, which to, in my view is clearly a quantum phenomenon, and to understand um, the true meaning of our existence based on knowing the eternity of our souls, and Eternia is also very focused on... On bringing spirituality and science together where they belong uh, broadening the boundaries of science
0: well you've you've heard the links Uh, I think so many people are just waiting for permission to acknowledge their own experiences so you can go and share them at Eternia.org that's E-T-E-R-N-E-A.org And we've been speaking with the amazing Dr. Eben Alexander about his book, Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's near-death experience and journey into the afterlife. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Goodbye. If you enjoyed this interview, you'll find many more on our book and film review site, ncreview.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter as NC review. Next week, our guest will be filmmaker Jerry Alden Deal talking about his new movie, Dreams Awake. And carrying on with the theme of today's show, we're playing in the background a short clip from Cosmic Hum, a healing and meditation CD by Jonathan Goldman that features the sounds of thousands of people humming together to emulate the original sonic cloud of manifestation. listening to Cosmic Hum by Jonathan Goldman, an author, musician, and teacher in the fields of harmonics and sound healing. You can learn more about Jonathan's work and CDs on his website, healingsounds.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today, but I did want to say to all of our friends who suffered so much in the superstorm that our love and prayers go with you. Until next week, then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review.